Drive-by Cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello, welcome to Drive-by Cinema. This is Season 2, Episode 25. With me is my co-host, Paul, all ham and no spam. <laughs> and with me is my co-host, Richard. Are uh, you feeling better? You're fully recovered from your recent... Pretty much, yeah. I would say I would say I'm 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 on the way to mending. My metal and my fettle are fully fettle metalled. So Well on the Discord chat, listener oh. Pete had given you a bit of advice about your DNA problem, hadn't he? You were grappling with the fact that the Mormons had stolen your your genome. And not given me the advice on health that I paid for, yeah. Yeah. That's right. You were hoping to hear like what age you were gonna die and stuff. And yeah, what heart conditions I potentially do or don't have. And instead, they were just going away and... Finding out if I was related to Jesus or, or, or black people. Yeah. They were just baptising your ancestors and your, your family members. <laughs> without their oh, consent. and delights them. So yeah, he, he suggested you download your DNA data from Ancestry.com and send it to somebody else who can do the medical bit. Yes, yeah. Thank you, Pete. I... I was just, you know, separating in illness, so I didn't say thank you and acknowledge your, your, your advice. It's very, very good advice. Although I imagine it's just as easy to provide another DNA sample to somebody else. They're not hard to come by. True. It's relatively True. No. straightforward. No. It's just a bit of spit. Yeah. Is it? Oh, spit. Right. Yeah, okay. Quite No, actually quite a lot of spit. Really? Yeah. Yeah. They give you a little cup and you have to fill up to a line. It's like a mouse's coffee cup of spit. <laughs> okay, okay. Now, listen. Correction. If a mouse wanted a slime, no, no. If a mouse wanted a slimy shower, it would be <laughs> a mouse's slimy shower of spit. If 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 the mice had Saturday morning swap shop, then it would be the gunk tank of mouse spit or a mouse gunk tank of spit. Saturday morning swap shop was a Saturday morning television program for those listeners who don't remember. That Noel Edmonds used to present. There was no gunk on there, was there? It was after that. It was the one You're thinking of Tiz was, aren't you? And yeah, the, the other things. Now, Paul, corrections and omissions and all of that stuff. Oh, hellfire. Do we have to? What? I guess we do. G- going, going back now here, too. Going back now to the, the podcast where I had said that I didn't really... Well, we were talking shit. I, said, I mean, that's not very... That's not a unary or specific, you know, granular definition of which podcast is it. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't narrow it down, though. Going back to the one where I was saying that... Talking smack. I didn't really listen to the meanings of song lyrics. and Oh, very interesting, yeah. And you said, yeah, but you don't think they really have meanings. And I said, no, maybe you're right. And I gave two examples, and you said, oh, no, I think those are the exceptions that do have meanings. <laughs> I was just being. I was being. I was being contrarian. My examples were. There are two ways to be contrarian. That's not to have a. You know, not to have a. Not to have a booster, or not to have a vaccination, or, or, or just be argumentative during conversations. Richard, I chose a second path. It's a safer path. Yeah. I it my is. suggestions were REM's "End of the World as We Know It," and yes, Billy Joel's "We Didn't Start the Fire." Both of them eschatological. Eschatological is that the word? Both of them relating to the end, or well, the end times. Maybe not. Maybe maybe, maybe not Billy Joel. Oh, so not scatological. Then. <laughs> no. <laughs> now, definitely, I did concede 
uh, on one of the subsequent episodes that clearly Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire is packed with meaning because he was listing a load of important historical events and figures as a way of showing younger counterparts that they don't have it, you know, they didn't have it easy in his day, like they seem to be claiming he did. Boomer. Now. <laughs> Sorry, go on. Well, interestingly, there is now a podcast which deals specifically with the meaning of every single utterance in Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. It's called We Didn't Start the Fire. It starts with Harry Truman, follows up with Doris Day. Red China, I think, is the next one. I've got to recommend it, if for no other reason than one of the two presenters is Katie Puckrick. No way. Now, where do you know that name from, Paul? Why is Katie Puckrick famous? She used to appear on The Word with Dennis Pennis. She was on The the Word, that's right. And she made a big name for herself because... The Word does that 90s exercise in salubriousness. It's the only way I can phrase it, really. Because on an outside broadcast, live outside broadcast... She screwed. She screwed in succession 75 porn stars. No. Like like, like, like a a production line. No, she... She, oh, she was sorry. No, she was on, on outside broadcast on camera. Allegedly, and she went. Com- she was going commando in quite a short skirt, and she went yeah. completely ass over tit and showed a muff off oh, no. on live television on Channel Four. <laughs> well, that's. I mean that. I mean we got we got quite a lot of that on, on the word. We didn't did we? L seven. I mean L seven yeah. were famous. They dropped for, their trousers, yeah, and showed it. Off. Dropping the dropping dropping their trousers, yeah. yeah. So it was perhaps not out of character for the word, but I think she made a big name for herself on British television. Not many people have done that. And I have to say, she's every bit as delightful and insightful and intelligent as she ever was, Katie Puckrick, on this podcast. So recommend from me, We Didn't Start the Fire. Okay. Which brings me to the subject of like 80s music television and stuff, which I seem to have found my way into on YouTube. Not because I was looking for Katie Puckrick's muff on the, on the word, but actually because <laughs> I, I did make this admission to you, Paul, whilst you were explaining to me how ill you were on one of our Discord channels. Yeah. I did say that I had been that I had contracted LSS, and you know I've got to say you didn't. The way you responded to that was, you know, it, it gave me great strength because you made it clear that. You know, even with that diagnosis, it wasn't going to change our relationship, for instance, that, you know, you weren't seeing it as a big deal. And I just felt that you were supporting me Sorry. In, in some ways. What the hell is LSS? Ah, okay. Yeah, well, see, so it was just the fact you didn't know what I meant then. It wasn't really that yeah. you were trying to reassure me or anything, I see. Well, it's a very serious condition, Paul, although common... You may well have had it. It stands for last song syndrome. Oh. You might know it as an earworm. I see. But I had it I had it really bad. Really bad. To the extent that, you know, I had to listen to this song over and over again. I just had to keep putting it on. Even at night, I couldn't get to sleep. For one night, two days and one night, I was completely obsessed by repeat playing this song. And what was the song? What was the song? You want me to tell you what the song was? Because, you know... Yeah. This is how earworms get transmitted, isn't it? Okay, so we're going all the way back to... That's how the game starts, isn't it? Oh, no. (laughs) Which we've (laughs) both just lost. This is going all the way back to 1982. 
Whoa. Spandau Ballet. Well, it's actually by a ska two-tone kind of band. Ah. And uh, we are called The Beat. Deeply authentic one's called Madness. Oh. Called okay. The Beat. Real ska band. In the UK. If, you, if you're one of our American listeners, that would be The English Beat. And if you're, I think, our only Australian listener, that would be The British Beat. It's a funny, really? it's a funny name to choose, isn't it? For a music, for a musical outfit, is the beat. You're kind of bound to have to change it at some point. How did the music get away with it, or did they end up being the the music UK or something? That's just so obviously going to be taken by the people that I don't think other people would, would have gone for. It. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. Like hiding in plain sight. Yes. In 1982, the beat came out with a song which I think is a bona fide classic. I, I genuinely think it's got a lot going for it. And I might be tempted to play it at you. I don't know. What's the best way of doing that? Just send you the link. Yeah, I'll just send, it, send you the link, Paul. This is taken from a live broadcast on Over the Top, which was, a, I think it was like a Tizwazzy type thing in the in the evening. It was Tizwaz for adults. Yeah. How is this two-tone? I'll come back to that. I mean, they are a two-tone band. I mean, do you know any other songs by the beat? No. You do? How about Mirror in the Bathroom? I don't. I don't. Okay, I'm getting a bit of two-tone now. What's the other one? That, that Oh, they they did a sort of Scar version of Tears of a Clown as well. That's quite famous. Okay, I'm, I'm a minute in. It's quite good. I'm going to go to the end, see if it goes anywhere else. Quite mature music, isn't it, really? Mature. Yeah. Interesting you use those words. Well, that was very good. You said that it's not very two-tone, and that's interesting because the, the lead singer there, Dave Wakeling... I believe he wrote that song before he was in the beat. I see. And and he's he's quite young, isn't he? He's a bit of quite a lot of twink energy going on there, isn't there? He's young, yeah. Yeah. So but it's nineteen eighty two, so what do you expect? Well, quite. Now I, I believe my understanding is that the rest of the band weren't that keen on recording this. Possibly because it's not really totally on you know, on message for the beat. It, they didn't maybe feel yeah. it was too tony enough. The optics aren't great as we'd say these days. But it's. It, I think it was a big hit for them because they became kind of well known for it. And I think it's. It's quite mellifluous, isn't I it? I think it's a cracking song. I think it's really good. In fact, I'd be surprised. I mean, you must have heard it before, right? Is it, or is it complete? No, I've never heard that. Really? Before. It's quite well known. Uh, so here's a question: And what do you think? It, what do you think it's about? What are the meanings of these lyrics? It appears to be about somebody running away from somebody else, Richard. <laughs> well, I mean, there's an element of that, yeah. I think... Am I just a shocking literalist at this point? Dave describes it as being a song about that moment between being an adolescent and becoming a man, uh, or becoming an adult, you know. And there's a host of different things going on. But the song is full of innuendo, really. I mean, really, it's about blowjobs, right? Oh. Really? As far as I can see. I mean, there's stuff about relationships and stuff, but the name of the song is a schoolboy innuendo. It's save it for later, for later, for later. See? Oh, I see. And this got past the Radio 1 census? And, uh, well, when you, the reason that I showed you this live performance is when he's singing the first verse, it ends with, just hold my hands while I come to a decision on it. And he holds the, the gaze of the camera at that point, you know, in a with a dirty smile. I don't know if you notice that. It's quite it's quite funny. It's quite well performed. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I, I, particularly OTT with, with Chris Tarrant. I mean, there was a whole commodity of bits. There, there, there was a whole black market of saying things that you weren't supposed to say. Wasn't <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. You know? uh, I mean, it was almost banned because they had people running around naked, covered, covered, covering their most vital parts with balloons, <laughs> which were popped. Uh, I remember watching it, and uh, I mean, I think everybody on the was like, "Well, so what?" You know, but. It's strange, isn't it? Because at the moment I'm watching Chippendales, the Netflix series, which is a fascinating watch. What? Those two chipmunks. The the Disney thing, is that? Chippendale, yeah. Uh, And the the moral outrage at the time was actually significant to the extent they started burning down male stripper clubs throughout throughout Los Angeles, you know. So we kind of forget, really, don't we, that we didn't live in social liberal times at all previously. No, well, I mean, 1982, you know, what, when did... Section 28 was like the end of the 80s, wasn't it? I think it, about 1988 yes. or something? Yes, yeah. It's shocking, really. It's shocking to think about. Section 28, for those who are not aware, was the Conservatives' legislation which banned what they described as the promotion of homosexuality, which what, what that amounted to, well, I think... Being visible. I think what it, what it meant was... Because of the chilling effect of no one really knowing what the fuck that meant, it meant that schools just would not teach anything about about homosexuality in schools because they were afraid that would that would be treated as promoting it, as if as if you know you can promote sexuality. <laughs> but it's one of those truth language phrases, isn't it? It's like you know, oh, this small IT firm we're going to have to close down because it threatens Microsoft's monopoly and therefore it threatens. Our nation's financial security, you know, it's kind of those warped kind of section twenty. It was one of those kind of warped things that just allowed very draconian interpretations, wasn't it? And it, it lasted like twelve years, I think, before they repealed it. Um, Did it? I think so. Wow. Something like that. And uh, gave birth to Stonewall and many things in response. So. Now, uh, but, 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 but Richard, let me let me let me butt in here and say your your earworm digressions uh, have. Made me think of a band I discovered, like listening to Amazon Music Random Shuffle. I, was, I thought, wow, that is the sound I've always wanted. Like talking heads, but smoother. And like, he's very famous, the guy, you know, the guy that led them. He also did some really groundbreaking, completely different disco. Like disco that was, was respected and still is respected kind of stuff in 76, 77. And they're called The Necessaries. Uh, and like I, this song of theirs, driving and talking at the same time. It is just knockout. Uh, of course, it's brilliant to drive to too. It's just very, very dreamscapey. So yeah, there we go. The necessary recommend everybody. driving and talking. We're going to have to do a, a Spotify playlist, Paul. That's what podcasts do when they can't. Hey, that's that's what we need to do. We need to branch out once or twice a year into our little album music review podcast, don't we? <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems like that's what we're doing. I'm going to close out my bit about my earworm just by saying interesting thing about that song is that Pete Townsend wanted to cover it. So it is, you know, well-regarded little cult hit, as it were. And Pete Townsend couldn't figure out how to play it, so he had to telephone Dave Wakeling. Imagine that, getting a telephone call from Pete Townsend. He asked him, you know, what what's going on? We can't get the sound quite right. Dave Wakeling admitted that the guitar is tuned in an unusual way. I think he tried to do it 
tune it in an old kind of bluesy style, but he'd got one of the one of the strings <laughs> wrong. Uh, so that's the secret sauce. Gave it a very distinctive sound. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's basically the same kind of chord all the way through, isn't it? It's just played. It's a kind of very repetitive but catchy hook. I will tell you on the next podcast how I displaced my earworm with another one, which will give rise to another chat about music. But I think it's time for your music, Paul, to lead into the film this week. This film, A Knight's Tale, is oh, also... we waited for this film. Fabulous. It's notable for its music as well, isn't it? It's musical score. It, it, it is, and I think we probably could talk about this till the cows come home. This is 2001. Heath Ledger stars... Sally no longer with us. True. Paul Bettany, of course. Very Some other people. Very strange poster or video cover on this, which is just a picture of Heath Ledger's face. A Knight's Tale. I don't like it. I, it doesn't tell me anything about the film that poster. I don't. I don't like it. I don't think it's successful. Was he? He wasn't a big star at this point, was he? No, not really. He was to become a huge star, of course. Uh, Brokeback Mountain. That was Heath Ledger, wasn't it? With Gyllenhaal. Gyllenhaal. A really crap film. I'm sorry. Nothing happens in Brokeback Mountain. You don't even get any hot gay sex, really, do you? Well, I suppose if you're uh, if you. Fetishized cowboy machismo. It's shocking, isn't it? But oh, it's kind of smouldering. Is that what you mean? But otherwise, it's a bit. I think it's a bit dull, isn't it? It is deadly dull. And then, of course, he made as dull as a quince tree. Then, of course, Heath was cast as the Joker in the Nolan Batman films and made a huge splash by playing the Joker so well. Yeah. But died tragically young of an overdose of prescription drugs, I think. What a way to go. It's a big problem, isn't it? Prescription drug overdoses. So what's the story of A Knight's Tale, Paul? Because you've been reading uh, Chaucer, haven't you? I have, yeah, as background. Well, for other reasons too. So yeah, I I was, I I think I've mentioned on podcast, The Partner's Tale uh, has some striking parallels with a field in England. It was for that reason I dipped into my little hardback Chaucer and tried to make sense of it all and failed because it's in the original doesn't it has like it has a glossary of terms but doesn't really it doesn't really help when you're reading it because you have to keep flick, flicking to the back and forward uh, and yeah 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 yeah. So actually I didn't get very far with the partner's tale uh, but I did resolve to start reading the knight's tale which this is uh, based which on which is the first is that right the first of the first of the uh, adventures or the first of the, t- the sort of uh, Fourth Wall Tales in uh, in Canterbury Tales, and this is what what this is all based on, as it were. Is it a faithful uh, adaptation? Very. <laughs> well, I haven't finished the Night's Tale, and I can't remember what it was. So, I, kinda, I guess. And there are many things where it isn't faithful. I think, in particular, Geoffrey Chaucer appearing in the story and being a ring announcer, as it were, <laughs> for medieval jousting. You know that. I'm pretty sure it didn't really occur. He's his herald at any Paul. point. Whatsoever. He's his herald. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, where to begin? Okay. Uh, well, I mean, William William Thatcher, played by Heath Ledger, is just a squire. A down on his luck. A squire. He's not. Oh. He's down on his peasant. A peasant. Okay. He's a servant. He's the peasant helper. Yeah. He's the peasant helper to two squires, who they themselves are 
they are, you know, in service to a, a travelling knight. So who I'm guessing you need to explain to is, me then the the, the yeah. ranks here. So obviously a knight is a knight. That's it. That's all I know. What's a squire to a knight? A squire is a landed person, but ain't gentry. I don't think he's a free man. Yeah, a free man with with money, I guess. So those two other guys are squires. They're squires. They're like you know, if it were a criminal organisation, they'd be henchmen. Right, but it's not. Okay, it's feudal. It's 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 feudal criminality. So, and Heath Ledger was taken as a small boy. We learn from his father onto the onto the road with this knight, who's yeah. who's business. No, I think he's just he's like a modern he's like a modern day tennis player. Yeah, he doesn't go fighting in wars. He just does the jousting tournaments. Is that right? That seems to be what's happening. Yeah, not, we don't see any evidence that they're actually in a war, do we? No. Is that, does that did that really happen? This is. I'm, I'm not sure that jousting was portrayed, but we'll get to this in a, in a few minutes. I think is how the director decided to make it relevant to modern audiences in various ways, including ring announcers and that kind of thing, and the music. But I'm not sure that jousting competitions were like what how they're presented here, which essentially is like you know you Saturday afternoon football. <laughs> Their knight dies, and it leaves them in a bit of trouble because they have no money. Yeah. So and there's a humorous moment when he dies because he he craps his pants. I'm not sure why he takes a bad blow. Is that right? And just dies and craps his pants. I don't remember that there's any explanation of why he dies. Maybe, oh. but yeah, he he dies as he said. But he's he's got his final pass or round of the joust that he's just died in the middle of, and so it falls upon William. To take his place, don, yeah, take his place, don his armor, get on the horse, and see what he can do. Now he's been eager to joust all his life, but he's a peasant, and so he's barred from taking part in the competitions. But surreptitiously, I think uh, previously he's been, you know, practicing and holding, holding the excuse me, the jousting stick, the lance, holding the lance, <laughs> and maybe you know on a hobby horse practicing all that kind of stuff so he can ride a horse and you know he can hold the lance but he ain't got the skills and the finesse like what you know like what you wouldn't have if you tried to join a fencing class down the posh sports hall so yeah so but he's brave brave that he is he jumps on there and and, and is it a last pass or last round they call it and uh, and yeah so that's how the story starts the first 15 minutes and they earn a little bit of money don't they from the event Enough to get by. Yes. And they go on the way. They decide to, to carry on doing this, to go to the next tournament and take part in the next event. Because there's like, a, as you say, it's like a tennis circuit. There's a jousting circuit that the Knights of Europe apparently go on. And along the road... <laughs> no, wait, wait a minute. Because, I mean, they're at war during the middle of, you know, somebody gets called off to go to war. Is that right? Yeah, like the baddie. Uh, Adamar, yes. Adamar. Like, he goes off to war. Presumably, like, some of the people at the jousting contest were on opposite sides, but nothing nothing passes. They're not taken hostage or anything like that. So, Well, that all depends on I, I which find... which uh, period this is, doesn't it? You know, where yeah. where do you place this in historic the historical context? Well, I mean, it's at the time of Geoffrey Chaucer. Which is so, which is when? Putting you on the spot here. <laughs> 14th century. Okay, okay. Yeah, I'll believe that. Is that ish? Is that not too early? It's quite early. For, no, no, that, that's right in the middle of jousting and stuff, isn't it? 
It is, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that people. I'm pretty sure it wasn't like a cross pan Europe thing where people would trek all the way to Flanders from Italy to take part. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm pretty sure that it was pretty much the locals, the local, the local gentry that did it, and maybe some some visiting dignitaries just happened to have their horse on their lands. But I find it very hard to believe that it's you know it's an all Europe competition. Yeah, it's a hell of a it's a hell of an undertaking to travel all across across Europe routinely, isn't it? By horseback. Yeah. Well, there's only one horse anyway. Most of them are walking. But on the road, journeying, they do meet Paul Bettany, naked, starting Bullock naked, who, gibbering who is at the sun. apparently, as he introduces himself, Geoffrey Chaucer. Geoffrey Chaucer? This is another example, like I mentioned the other week, of the writer, a writer appearing in a film. And of course, he ends up writing the story of the film that you're watching. Now, he says, look, I can do you anything, you know, whatever you want. Like, I can write you... Patents of nobility. I can write you this, I can write you that, I can write you a will, and I can write you patents of nobility. And they're like, oh, here we go. This is our chance to do this thing again. Yeah, because I think they've, they're at the... Are they outside the jousting tournament? And are they trying to think of a way to, to pretend to be who they are? Yeah, exactly, yeah. He develops a legend, as the secret agents would, would say, for himself... Uh, which is that he is Ulrich von Liechtenstein, which is interesting. <laughs> this is a place I've been recently. I suppose his thinking is that Liechtenstein is so small, such a tiny principality, that it wouldn't have a circuit of nobles who would know who Ulrich was. So, you know, it, 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 he could get away with it. That's presumably his thinking. But he manages to produce on the road... He managed to produce a very, very convincing, an elaborate, illuminated document. <laughs> <laughs> Not the first time that happens in this well film. Yeah, a very talented man, Geoffrey Chaucer. You know, we can tell by his writing. Now, while they're trying to get into this competition, William meets an extraordinary, beautiful woman. He, he rides into into a church on a horseback, following Jocelyn. I don't think it's made explicit where she's from. She seems to be maybe Spanish or Italian or something. Yeah, yeah. And obviously this is their meet cue. It's sort of a romantic comedy thing going on here, isn't it? But Jocelyn has another suitor in the form of the the villain here, Adamar, who we've mentioned, played by Rufus Sewell, who's introduced to us mansplaining jousting to the to Jocelyn. Uh, as they're as they're watching the event. Now I, I quite like how he hams it up. Uh, who is it, Rufus Sewell? Yeah, I, I, he plays the villain really well, quite camply, uttering uttering curses through gritted teeth and uh, <laughs> pointedly, you know, pointedly saying to Thatcher, William Thatcher, that uh, you know he's going to take this girl, girl's hand in marriage, and uh, she's just a trophy, a trophy to be won like anything else at a jousting tournament. <laughs> so yeah. Yes, he's uh, pretty callous, isn't he? We're, we're, we're meant to hate he's him. callous, yeah. But William's pretty handy with the, the old fighting styles. He manages to win the sword event. Yeah. But jousting, he loses to Adamar. He does, by a whisker, kind of. Oh, no, no, the first time they meet, not by a whisker. I mean, he's pretty much, he's, he's, he, t- he takes a drubbing, doesn't he? He does, oh. yeah. He's, and, after all, fairly uh, new to his old His old armour gets laughed at, too, because it has like a, Quite a dinky little inbuilt shield on the left shoulder. Well, also, it's not his armour. And, you know, I think armour is generally, or was generally, built bespoke for the wearer. I think if you were wearing somebody yes. else's armour, it's yeah. probably quite 
inefficient and uncomfortable. It, yeah, it would scrape and chafe and all that kind of stuff. By the way... Metal chafing can't be any fun. Have you heard of something, I don't really know how to pronounce it, I think it's called Boohurt or Buhurt? No. Is it a cartoon? No, it's a kind oh. of sport. Oh, tell me more. Well, it's not the only name for it. I think this started mostly in Russia, and I think that's their name mm. for it. It's a, it's basically a martial art. It's medieval combat. So oh, God. stop me if... I've seen this, yes. So you wear I've seen full this. armor, and you go into... It's a square ring. A yeah. square. Oh, oh, it's a square square. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And everyone has got real weapons. They're blunt, but there are swords, there are pole arms, there's axes. You're not allowed hammers. I think that's against the rules. And you're not allowed things that punch holes in armor. But other than that, they just... It's a free-for-all. Absolutely. They lay about one another. Pummel the shit out of each other, yeah. And the goal is to knock your opponent down on the ground. If he, it's just, What's it called? The the Russian version is called Buhurt or Buhurt. B-U-H-U-R-T or something like that. You know, double T. Wow. Maybe. But there's... I think there's two or three factions or kind of rule um, class, uh, codifications um, that have split off from one another a little bit. And I think one's called something like uh, International Medieval Combat or something, ICM something or other. And I think there's another one as well. Um, but it's all basically the same thing, which is you get yeah. teams of varying sizes, you put them in this ring, and the idea is to knock your opponent down, usually by beating the living shit out of them uh, until... <laughs> <laughs> until they fall over. and Well, I, I think it's a good progress from medieval battle creation where people go in there with like wooden sticks and pretend to fight each other. Yes, yeah. Reenactment, yeah, yeah. I think this has developed from that. And I think yeah, it's, I think one of the, the ideas behind it is they're sort of saying, listen, this armour really worked, which I suppose you have to say that it does because, you know, we're talking here blows that would kill a normal unarmed person in an instant you know yeah they don't hang they don't hang back <laughs> no I, i've seen it i've seen it yeah uh yeah well worth checking out on youtube um medieval combat or boo hurt or whatever you call it uh have a look for it it all reminded me of that though this whole jousting thing and this sword play stuff it seemed very uh, reminiscent of that same activity so uh, william has got to win jocelyn's heart and he also uh, he wins money in the in the second contest at the at the fighting, but not at the jousting. Um, and with the winnings from that, I mean, there's there's an occasion where he tries to get new armor made, but can't do, and runs into the partner from the partner's tale in Canterbury Tales, who is played amazingly by somebody I knew in my childhood. In fact, lived not fifty yards away from me from my childhood home. You, what, you, which is Jonathan Slit who. Jonathan Slinger, the, the actor in this film, you lived on his street, Paul. I lived on his street, yeah. Wow. And he has an amazing mullet in this movie. That is a claim to fame, Paul. That is a claim to fame. He's very famous in Rada. He's done lots of Shakespeare. Uh, and this is one of his few sort of uh, uh, escapades in in in, 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 in in celluloid. So yeah. Well, if only I had a story to rival that, if only. Oh, oh, oh. You do, and I know you do. Richard's claims to fame are 
are multitudinous and many. Let me tell you something, Paul. Because, of course, you knew Jonathan Slinger at the same school that I I met you at. Yes. Well, let me tell you something. I... Which will remain nameless. I was in the same drama class as Jonathan Slinger. As James Whale. As Jonathan Slinger. What? Yes. You did drama? I did drama, and I did it in the same class as Jonathan Slinger. Which you did not do drama. You did sciences like everybody else. Uh-huh. But maybe you forget that they forced you to do a GCSE to uh, broaden your what? educational... Yeah. Oh, yes. What, what was your... I was clever. What was your GCSE? I was clever. <laughs> I took P- Russian, oh, which Russian. required required me to say eight words. It was like, you know, beginner certificate. It wasn't GCSE. Well, I was clever too because I wanted to do drama and I did drama and I loved doing drama. And I was good at it. So you've got a GCSE in drama? I do. I have an A in drama at GCSE level. Wow. What did Jonathan get? Well, I'm absolutely he certain got he got an A. Uh, yeah. So he, I mean, he was the darling of all our TV, uh, not of all our, you know, uh, school productions. Uh, he, he was a very, very talented actor. But I've got to say, I have to say, during my education in drama with Jonathan, alongside Jonathan Slinger, he did criticise one of my performances, and it, it it's a wound. It's a wound that's never healed. Is it is it payback, Harry? Is that what you said? Today is so because we were doing. What did he say? <laughs> well, we were doing um, like To Kill a Mockingbird or something, some southern US oh, kind of anti. Oh, antebellum God. kind of thing, I can't remember. But, yeah. uh, and I was acting in it. And afterwards, the teacher was asking for comments. And Jonathan said he criticised my use of an American accent. Because... He did not. He did. Because I was doing, like, the American accent I hear all the time. You know, just a city, you know, modern, conventional, Midwest American accent. Not... Yeah. I wasn't doing an Alabama accent or whatever is the locality. A drawl, so to speak. Yeah, I wasn't doing that. And that to, that would have felt a bit... I would have felt a bit like a caricature if I was trying to do that and failing. Yeah. But a, a normal... And what did Jonathan say about you? It, he said he, it didn't suit. It didn't sit right. The American accent was... Oh, fine. That's strong criticism, It was, it? and I've never, I've never recovered from it. But quite quite accurate, I have to it's say. Like, <laughs> we can't really... We can't really damn Jonathan being right, can we now? I mean... <laughs> but... The thing was, Paul, it's it's a it's a place in the deep south. Jonathan, lock your doors. Set in the deep south. I felt wrong doing it in my English accent. You know, wouldn't that wouldn't have been right? Oh, so other people were doing English accents. They didn't criticize those. Is that what you're saying? No, no, no. I, well, look, I suppose there's an argument that if you can't do the accurate accent, don't do it. Well, at all. don't do it. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not so sure. I agree. I mean. To a very educated listener, I'm with you on this, Richard. To a very educated listener, maybe you would go, "Yeah, that's not quite the right American accent," but it, it was an American accent. It seemed more apropos than than my my Mancunian. I don't know. I don't well, know. when I was younger, I went to the same elocutionist as Jonathan, and I think he continued with with her, and so he probably could do accents at that point in his in his acting career. You see. Oh, so. um, indubitably, I'm sure he could. Uh, however, yeah, well, what do you think about Heath Ledger and his accent in this one? Because we had we had Nicole Kidman trying to do an American accent and and Paul Bethany uh, last week in that god awful thing in that uh, in that whatever it was 
Dogville. Heath Ledger's actually... What do you think? It's, it's not a disaster, is it? But it's not very natural. It's not Keanu Reeves. It's not Keanu no, Reeves bad. It's not Keanu Reeves in uh, Vampire Thingy. In whatever it is. Oh, Bram Stoker's Vampire. Who could forget that? Dracula. Yeah. But, but it's not... You can tell it's not his natural utterance that he's having Can to- we say it's squidgy? It's got a squidgy feel to it, hasn't it? It's like plasticine. He's exerting this- himself to do it. He's exerting yeah. himself. Yeah. So that, there's my claim to fame, Paul. You lived on a street and went to it's- the same allocutionist. I outdid learnt, me once again. I learnt the dramatic arts alongside Jonathan. Wow. So, yeah, they pay Geoffrey Chaucer's gambling debts to the partner and his his friend, don't they? So what is the story all about? Who are those guys? Are they supposed to be odious creeps in Chaucer's work? Well, the pardon is... Is that just just me seeing Jonathan Slinger and thinking... (laughs) Do you know, like, if you're Catholic and you go and you do your Hail Marys and you you twiddle your rosemary beads, like, in the medieval era, there was a whole... Like, if you go to a a contemporary uh, Japanese Shinto shrine, there's all those kind of religious relics that you buy. Uh, and the partner was like the purveyor, I think, of religious relics for absolution in the medieval times. And in in Chaucer's, Chaucer's bawdy tales, which, are, you know, are full of like, they're full of bathos. And, and they're full of, you know, the it's it's I think it's the birth of like what we might say is modern British humour. You know, it, it's, it's, it's all about pulling the rug from under underworthy people's legs, uh-huh. you know, yeah, uh, and it's kind of revealed to he 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 actively reveals himself to be to be a fake and you know a, a womanizer and this kind of stuff, and he's just there to get as much money out of out of the pilgrims as possible. Ah, uh, so he's which is strange because he's on a pilgrimage with pilgrims, you see. So it's it's all very revelatory in the in the in in the book itself. I see. So this character in the film is very much he's a badder, yeah. It's the same. It's it's a money grubbing kind of, yeah. He'd be like a bad landlord in, in, in today, or like a you know a really really dodgy pawnbroker or something like that. I don't know. I see. Like I a see. loan shark, that kind of thing. Because Chaucer's got a gambling habit in uh, in this film, doesn't he? He can't help but but gamble all the time. Is that yeah. is that accurate? Yeah. Is that is that Chaucer? <laughs> I don't. I I think this is highly apocryphal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this uh, movie proposes to be the story of. Chaucer's missing year. Isn't there a year where nobody knows where he was? And this this film is filling that gap, isn't it? I see. I see. Okay. Can we just... Let's just... We're halfway through the story. Can we just take a quick detour okay. on the luxury on the luxury coach all the way down to Bournemouth to look at the kind of intentional anachronisms inserted into this movie? Let's start with the soundtrack and the choices of rock music that accompany Queen, we will rock the, you. We will rock you. Which the crowd <laughs> tap along with. Love. So it's not simply music. Well, they do the they do the whole they do the Mexican wave at some they point. They do do the Mexican wave, but also wave. they do like they do the kind of one foot or the foot clap clap, clap up kind of thing we to it. You know, we will we will rock you. Clap clap up. So it's not just. Yeah. That we're hearing that music in the soundtrack. It's diegetic. They're hearing it. It's actually them singing it, you know. And then, then later... We kind of get a Moulin Rouge thing, a funky thing, where they do the medieval dance. And it starts off with flutey, flutey, wooty music. But then it kind of breaks into... Heroes. Yippee, yippee, yay, yay, yay. What is it? It's, it's David Bowie, isn't it? It's Heroes. Uh, uh, and they're, they're, 
there's slinky funking to it, you know, the slinking to it, to the left, to the right, kind of doing the hip move kind of stuff. There, there are maybe four or five moments where the music is explicitly modern and they're hearing it and they're reacting to it in just a thoroughly modern way. And the director said, you know, I did this on purpose. I wanted to show how medieval music wasn't as we hear it to be really boring, but actually it would be like really, really stimulating for everybody. But he hasn't done that. He's put modern music in that they found really, really stimulating. And when the flutey woozy music, flutey wooty music play is playing, they're just they're bowing and curtsying to it. So, so what's all that about? It's just completely confused. I thought this movie is just a bag of fun, isn't it? Right. I mean, it nails its colours to the the lens. So, you know, I think you... I mean, I I indulge it because... Am I... Well, no, I mean, listen, listen. In which case, why horses, not cars? Why don't you just have a drag race? <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Would that... I mean, I really want to convey the excitement people would see when charging horses in jails, you know. So why not... Why not a drag... Why not a drag race? Then? Look, it's... Mo- Does it, that make it's sense? Argument, it doesn't. It's ridiculous. His argument is that modern audiences, modern ears, if you heard, like, medieval music, it wouldn't have... It wouldn't have people won't respond to it the way a medieval person would respond to the music, their contemporary music, you know, like their contemporary music was obviously. Like- I don't know. Like he just, I mean, he's never heard of Dead Can Dance, has he? Which is really, really romp, romping dance music, no, uh, but with I, big vibrated, vibratory pigskin drums and you know, <laughs> and and lutes instead of instead of instead of synthesizers. But it, I mean, when you put that on loud, it works the same way. Yeah, I mean, I've got to admit. I mean, I did actually do some homework for this. He podcast. made some. He made some weak choices here. I, I know it's. Uh, I know it's unfashionable to say, but I did some homework and I went and listened to some medieval music, and some of it yeah. was very dull and and perhaps unprepossessing. But some other stuff was actually pretty good and could easily have worked in this film. I think. There we go. But Thank you. it wouldn't. You'd have a hard time making it properly contemporary i mean you know if you're gonna play fast and loose with all the other historical aspects of the film which he did then you know does it really make any sense to take the effort to go because you know if in 100 well 200 300 400 years time someone was trying to make this is still a classic if if someone no, if, if someone was trying to make a film of drive-by cinema or something you know and and they wanted contemporary music and they ended up finding oh, a load of oh, it's back at it's back at my music, isn't it? It's back at my intro music, Richard. But if, is that what you're heading yeah. for? But if they wound up playing a whole load of '60s or Beatles music, and said, "Oh, you know, this is hugely popular in the era," I mean that's true, yeah. but it's not the right era, right? You know, I mean they would need true, like I don't know, Manchester indie music or with you. So, and given the fact you can't really place this. Very well. Or well, maybe you can if you know when Chaucer was missing. But they just wouldn't know. They wouldn't know what, what the contemporary music was, would, would they? They wouldn't really know. So it would all be... Okay, I'll, I'll allow it. I'll allow it, as they say on TikTok, the young'uns. Look, okay, but... Like... Did it annoy you? The other did thing it annoy thought, you, the music choice? Did you... Did you did... It didn't, but the fact, the fact there wasn't a drag race instead of horses did. Ah, uh, but... I, you, you know, I found... listen... His logic was, I, I found his logic acceptable, but I found its patchwork application to be somewhat unedifying. Look, we've got to also talk about the jousting here, right? Because. 
Well, well, amazing. Some amazing camera work and some amazing jousting. But Richard, you got so spectacular. I mean, has jousting ever been filmed as well before? Probably not. How could it have been? You know that. And if you read about how they did it, you know they built these lances with sort of balsa wood and stuff, and they were designed to kind of splinter. That was the idea of jousting, by the way. The idea of a joust originally was that you, it wasn't supposed to be fatal. You well, no. <laughs> Um, no, well, it, oh. it was originally like, when jousting started. It was like a duel for cavalry. It was for, a duel, for wasn't cavalry, it? Yeah. yeah. But then it became codified into more of a sport, and the idea was that the lance would break on your opponent. You know, they would shoulder the, you know, face the lance, but you would hit them so hard that your lance would break. And in a knight's tale, you know, they make the lances explode into a shower of splinters, that, and that that kind of thing could and did happen and it wasn't there was a famous french king wasn't there who got a splinter that went through the eye slit and into his head through his eye i think it killed him they mentioned this don't they in the movie um put your head back william put your head back yeah, yeah. you're not supposed to look at the final moments that, that's why yeah so jousting helmets the camera work that's why those jousting helmets are um, often kind of an upturned kind of kind of shape so the eye slits are more on the top. So when you put your head back, yes. the lance slides off. But the the jousting in this is fantastic. The camera work is amazing. I don't think there's ever been jousting filmed so spectacularly. And, you know, that's you've got to give it credit for that. No, I mean, the thud of the who's on the turf, uh, the slow motion, the just the wonderful cinematography amazing and the opening shot is like of a really 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 great joust there's a terrible accident as the guy falls off the horse and this was all by accident it was the stuntman having a really bad accident they weren't supposed to hit each other with the lances and did do and uh so they kept it in the film is that uh, is that how fun. their knight died then was that was that the accident maybe i missed that connection but was that what we were watching what well, Maybe they wrote it in afterwards, after this really bad fall. They thought, well, let's just write it in and have this, this guy die. Uh, I'm not sure about that, but I think he did die because of the accident that, that, that opens the first sequence in the film. Yeah. So I want to get back to 2000 and whatever it was, one. And uh, when I mean, this, is, this is an American production, but it is very much in a tradition of like celebrating, if you like, not Europeanness, but. It's essentially, you know, celebrating British culture, isn't it? Uh, and so there are things here that they've written in that I'm not sure an international audience would recognise. Like, they have they do this thing that isn't drag racing, but is similar to We Will Rock You uh, and the, the modern music, where they have, like, you know, William and Chaucer and the guys, after they've won money and stuff like that, in, they're, they're in their local taverna. And they're doing British football chants, like, <laughs> to celebrate. Yes. That was just icky. I thought that was really icky. <laughs> yeah, it, it it's one of those... I mean, there's been a few films that have done this. Uh, what's he called? Uh, Madonna's ex-husband, uh, Guy, Guy Ritchie? Yeah, Ricky. R- Guy, Guy Ritchie. Ritchie. He did, uh, like, an Arthurian thing, and he had David Beckham being one of them, didn't he? He did, yes. This, Kind of uh, British football, football hooligan kind of medievalism, which you know, I suppose it again allow it, but 
Well, it's a bit unsatisfying, isn't it? You know, when the British went to war, when the English, I suppose, went to war with Welsh bowmen and stuff, the commoners shooting arrows at the French nobles in armour, it's, it's a similar idea, isn't it? It's a very kind of low... It, it, it's kind of a low nobility fighting the top of French society. And, you know, it's the same idea, I think, that they're trying to... And in a way, I guess A Knight's Tale feels like the first... It's like ploughing the furrow of the first attempt to portray that. Yeah. Anyway, back to the story, yeah? Okay. So before he wins the money from his fating with a sword, he actually manages to get, like, a repair done to his armour by Kate. Kate. Who is actually a furrier, a farrier, somebody who mends horses' hooves, but he's good at the metalwork. And, of course, there's a whole kind of thing, well, she's a woman, so she can't be... A proper blacksmith. Uh, you can't do armor. A proper blacksmith yeah. kind of thing. And so, like, uh, there's a little funny moment where he plays on her pride to get the work done for free, saying like, "Well, the only reason you're not doing it is because you can't do it because you're a woman," kind of thing. But anyway, so she becomes part of their crew, and obviously for money, she makes them a nice new shiny set of armor. And the end of the movie just really heads down a very predictable path, doesn't it? Where he eventually wins. He proves his love. For for his his lady of choice by by not competing and by losing well, weirdly well yeah uh, and also don't forget British royalty or English royalty takes part in the joust. Oh, this is I'm sorry that's this is the, that's the critical, Black yeah. Prince isn't it is that I'd, yes Edward Edward yeah and he's taking part under an assumed name across Europe but just like William in one of his early jousts William. Uh, meets him and he's been injured as Edward and I think everybody kind of sort of half knows that it's the oh, prince that's right yeah. but William meets him on the on the tilt as it were and uh, he says he's going to withdraw but William gives him an honourable tie rather than you know jousting him or anything yes they, they pass with their lances down or something and as a consequence I suppose he's proven that he's you know the noble and honourable chap to Edward which becomes important at the finale of the film. This is another thing that I think, yeah. you know, when you're saying that maybe audiences that aren't, aren't British or aren't English may not understand, is the class structure that this film depicts, which is a very rigid hierarchical class structure that, you know, William would have had no chance of taking part in this if he wasn't there through subterfuge, because he's just not of noble blood. and He's not noble blood, no. So he has no right to even participate in this. You know, it's unthinkable to them that that could happen. No matter what his merits are as a fighter, he's not entitled to do it. And, you know, so I think it might cross or strike a lot of people as odd that that situation should have obtained. I guess it wasn't unique to Britain, but, you know, the thing about Britain is it's almost still here. <laughs> Arguably... Social mobility is no better now than it was being depicted at the time. Anyway, sorry, to, to, uh, very fair point. But so at some point, you know, they're sending love letters by doves or by 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 I don't know by servants, <laughs> William and Jocelyn, and she says, in order to prove your love, you must lose, not fight. You must lose. You must be brave enough to lose. Okay, you must surrender yourself in the same way you have to surrender yourself to me in love. A uh, very medieval uh, and uh, that kind of thing, and he does do, yeah. But at the same time, uh, our baddie, 
uh, Aldemar, has discovered that William isn't really who he says he is. He's followed him back to this moment. I, I guess it's supposed to be a, a warm, heartwarming moment where he goes back to his childhood home. Meets his dad. Meets his dad. So they must be jousting in England at this point. Is that right? Oh, yeah, they've come back. Yeah, they crossed the channel. They come back to London. It's like coming back to Wembley, isn't it? For the uh, the finals it is. of the and Euros. And all the come over for the jousting, yeah. Okay, he's come back for the for the away match. And he follows him, you know, through through the hovel and through the back streets as as William meets his blind father and says, Do you remember that little boy who wanted to do that? Well he's done it. Yeah, it's quite a Hollywood moment. And his father is sheds tears of happiness. But looking at the window is Aldemar and he's discovered this truth. I think it's Adamar. To do by with what well, he will. Oh, I'm sorry. It is Adamar, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I mean, how does how does how does the plot sort of? Well, he gets put in the stocks, doesn't he? Tight. He gets put in the stocks for pretending to be a noble, and at, at that point, the Black Prince Edward turns up with all of his bodyguards, kind of takes his hood off and stuff, ah. steps out of the crowd, and says, you know. Uh, uh, I can't remember what he says, but he said he he has William released from the stocks. He knights him there and then. Again, it's the only way people can climb up the uh, the social ladder is getting an emergency knighthood, and he can then go back <laughs> go back into the uh, the jousting tournament to face Adamar, the final event. Oh, and Adamar, of course, what is, a finale! He's going to cheat. Adamar has sharpened his he's lance, tipped. And he's tipped his lance, is what they say, whatever that means. Well, what he does is he sharpens his lance, puts... Oh, I thought it was poison. I wasn't really paying attention. At no, point. he puts uh, spun sugar on the end that looks like the head of the lance so that the spun sugar will shatter and then the sharpened lance will pierce the armour. How very clever. Yeah, it is clever, yeah. Even though Kate's armour is excellent. That's why he's a noble. That is one thing. Kate manages to make that armour for William in quite short order. You know, normally I think making an entire suit of bespoke armour might take weeks. And she also seems to yeah. do quite a lot of it on the road. I mean, I'm not sure how you do that. You need to you need to have a forge, would you, wouldn't you? How do you go on the road as a blacksmith? Drop two sticks, get a fire going. But there is a nice touch where she says that she wants her logo, as it were, on the armour. Her maker's mark, so people recognise it. Her maker's mark. And so she inscribes a couple of Nike swooshes. On the armour. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I I was almost sick at that moment. That was just grotesque. That was awful. I like, I like that. Did you like I that, I did like that. Oh, you like that. I like these anachronisms, these uh, playful anachronisms. Right, so predictably, eventually he wins the hand of his lover, doesn't he? And he gets the girl, he kills the baddies. They'd be canoodling in bed, although, before then. So he saves the entire planet. Presumably. Uh, it's a predictably yeah. Hollywood ending, and everyone's happy. And Chaucer has got a new story to write down. Kate has got uh, her fame and fortune as a blacksmith. And William it all ends well. is a knight. Aldemar. Al- Adamar, sorry. What's he called? Adamar. Adamar is consigned humiliated, to the illness, presumably. Humiliated. Humiliated. Sent packing. The, the same way I did with your, your uh, name-dropping story about living near to Jonathan Slinger. The way I won up to you in our joust. <laughs> well, Richard is famously, you know, famously he's he's met everybody basically. You say, "Oh, I met this person," you know, 
I mean, I think it's okay when you meet people to brag about it. No, you know, not in public, but to people that you, that you know. But whenever you say that to Richard, you'll all say, oh, but, you know, and I did this. And it's inevitably more impressive. So, so no change there, Richard. Thank you. What do you give the score for this film then, Paul? <laughs> uh, whoa. Well, we've got to think of categories, first of acting, all. Acting, uh, number one. Obviously, the usual acting and plot and action, I guess. I don't know if you'd agree to that, Richard. Acting, plot. And medievalism. Yeah, historical Medi- accuracy. Periodicity. Yeah. <laughs> okay, periodicity. Okay, well, for acting, it was perfunctory. Uh, it did what it did, and nobody put on a bad show. So I'm going to score it a seven. Oh, I think some great performances here. Really? Yeah. Paul Bettany as Chaucer is brilliant. I love Kate as the blacksmith. The baddie, Adamar, Rufus Sewell. Jonathan Slinger. What about Jonathan okay. Slinger? <laughs> did you find did you find his medieval accent convincing, Richard? <laughs> hey? I think it's okay to have if they'd yeah. used contemporary language, Paul, no no one no one could understand it. So I think I think it was okay. Perfectly acceptable. There you go, Jonathan. See, I'll be, I can be the bigger bigger guy here. It sounds like you've been exonerated. This is really, this is finally flushing that, that wound out now. This is... Deep breaths, deep breaths. Cathartic moment. So I'm going to give this an eight for acting. Eight? Yeah. I knew it was an eight. Okay, plot-wise, uh, you know, it was very much a linear a linear plot. It's a hero's journey. It was obvious. Yeah. It was obvious which direction we're headed in. It was fairly obvious it was going to end very much in a Hollywood style. But it, it is a fun film. Surprisingly, 20 years later, it's still a really good romp. I did actually mostly enjoy it until the end when I kind of switched off. It comes across as a little bit vapid, a little bit candy flossy. flossy. However, it is meant to be just pure fun. So on that basis, I felt we could have had a little more gravity in the plot. We didn't see many deaths, did we, or anything like that. Uh, It was purely romantic comedy. I... I'm going to give it a a seven in total. Oh, yeah, no. Um, you're persuading me, I think. I was going to go slightly lower than that because it is so... Go lower, go lower. No, I mean, yeah, it's by the numbers. It's by the numbers. But it did entertain me. So I'm going to give it a seven as well. I found it a lot of fun to watch. Very easy watch. So, uh, action and special effects. Well, I can't, I can't knock the jousting. It was beautifully done. And beautifully shot, uh, and there was lots of more thrown in. This, you know, the sword fighting scenes. It romped along at a fair old pace. Uh, I did find it a bit sluggish. I would have liked to have more action generally uh, than there was. And I didn't enjoy the ponderous romantic scenes. Kind of, they kind of <laughs> they t- took away from the action. <laughs> yeah, we don't want all Go that on. kissy kissy stuff. Right? It was very kissy kissy, wasn't it? I. I thought the uh, training montage was a bit hackneyed. I mean, oh, that was awful. Actually, that was really terrible. Yeah, so that was like Rocky, but with dressed up in your mother's. You're not the first person. Lots of people online have compared this. I've described it as a medieval Rocky. I don't get Rocky. It's Rocky. I do not get Rocky out of this. The training montage was definitely Rocky. Like all films, the humor of it. All films have a montage. I know, but the humour of the training, like when it goes wrong and he carries Rocky on, doesn't have humour in Rocky. the training. This is why it's not Rocky. Rocky isn't funny. It does. Does it? It does. Rocky is funny. Oh, what what You just funny don't get happens? Stallone's sense of humour. <laughs> what the fuck funny happens in Rocky? It's deadpan. It's deadpan, Richard. It's Italian. It's New York Italian. 
Okay, sorry, Jonathan, if I said that wrong. Uh, look, look, New York, <laughs> New York, uh, coffee. I want a coffee. I'm walking here. Uh, <laughs> look, oh god, you really. Oh, my train has gone now. What we we're gonna say? We were talking. Yeah, the kissy kissy bits. They really, really were dragged out too long. It's an action movie, a comedy. It should have been comedy, romantic comedy action, and there wasn't quite enough action. As you say, the montage of training was really daft. It was literally Rocky, but, you know, dressed up in the curtains. It's not Rocky. Bedding box. <laughs> I guess to rewatch so Rocky. So you've, you've really pointed out some things where I need to score this down. It was going to be an eight, but I'm going to get a seven. Look, I think the, the jousting scenes are so spectacular. And, you know, they just, they do lots of jousts, right? Quite a few jousts, anyway. Yeah. So I... I wanted more, though. Oh. I'm going to give it an eight. I think, I think it's I think it's well done, on the whole. Okay, finally on to periodicity. <laughs> or ironic or reference periodicity. Whatever you thought. You know, I have absolutely no idea about history, really, particularly this era. I couldn't... <laughs> From what I've read, it seems to be a very few people do. I mean, it's not it's not like it's well documented, is no. it? Uh, no, and uh, we've got like three novels in England from this time, or four or five, and a bit of poetry, and and you know some deeds from some churches, and and some waffly, self important governmental declarations. And that's it, isn't it? Really? And Chaucer goes yeah, missing for a whole year. So, I, I, yeah. I, I, I think there is a London Eye depicted when they arrive in London, like a a kind of wooden version of the London Eye, which is beautiful. Uh, okay. So you know, if you if you're going to do this before your history GCSE, you probably, I think you're probably looking at a, at a five, at a five. Jousting was real, right? I mean, it really happened. It did really happen. Jousting was yeah. real, yeah. yeah. I'm just not sure it had the NASCAR <laughs> sort of a Friday night fight. Saturday football feel that was, you know, being portrayed here. But I bet people but I, know, I bet people bet on it and cheated and because humans are humans no matter when and where. Oh, definitely. So, you know, in terms of periodicity and what he was aiming for, which is, I guess, translational periodicity, uh, I'm going to score this a six. Generous. All right. So, overall, then, I, I like this. Overall, yeah. I've got a big soft spot for this film, so... I'll give it a seven. Do you know, I, I kind of suggested this with the idea it was going to be shits and giggles, uh, but it wasn't. I was still pleasantly surprised by how well it is aged. Uh, it's going to be a 6.5 for me. It's actually well worth watching. Cool. Paul. That brings us to the end of this episode and the usual agonising choice for next week. <sighs> Agonise no more. I'm only going to give you one choice, oh. Richard, and it is Morgan, which about which I know nothing whatsoever. Ah. It stars, I think it stars, the girl who starred in the chess thing, the chess series. The what? What's it called? Uh, Richard, you're rambling. What are you talking about? It doesn't matter. Uh, we'll fix it in post. Okay, so it's Morgan. Morgan. And thank you, Richard, for telling us about a different movie that the star has been in. But do you know anything about Morgan? No, he doesn't. It's uh, a science fiction thriller. It's a, oh, it's about an AI like robot. Yes. Aside to audience, you know, before this, we we drawn up a, a mutually agreed long list of movies, and then at the beginning of the podcast said, 
I said, you know, which one are we going to choose? And Richard said, oh, I, I've got one instead, Morgan. I said, okay, we'll go with that. So. <laughs> Thank you for choosing Morgan, Paul. And until the next week. <laughs> which is episode 26, when we're watching Morgan. From us, for today, it is goodbye. It is toodaloo for now, ciao for now, and see you on the next one. Over and out. Ooh.